0: BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash you to sleep. That's try better, H E L P, and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for bore you to sleep listeners. With 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash bore you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Millie at Love's Extremes. The story talks of a romance that begins in the mountains between a mountaineer and a young woman called Millie. The book was written by Morris Thompson and published in 1901. My name is Teddy and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who has reached out to send their gratitude to me during the week. Thank you to Sydney Natalia for your lovely messages on Instagram. Thank you to Emily Mills for your warming message through the website. Thank you to Joanna Tuxeria for your appreciative message through CastBox. It means the world that I've been able to support you. I thank the anchor supporters and Patreons that continue to support the show. If you do appreciate the podcast, a lovely way to say thank you is to leave a review in your podcast app. Even one sentence can help out. If you would like, You can also say hello at BoyYouToSleep.com, where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, at BoyYouToSleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the ratings. Millie, at Love's Extremes, by Morris Thompson. Chapter 1. Mountain Dew A man stood on the jutting shoulder of a mountain overlooking a long, narrow valley, whose scattering houses and irregular farm plats seen through the clear air of that high region, appeared scarcely a gunshot distant, when in fact they were miles away. It was the early morning. The sun had barely cleared the highest peaks in the east, and the landscape, albeit a midwinter one, was wonderfully rich in colors. On the oak trees the leaves still clung in heavy brown, green, and russet masses. The hickory forests, though leafless, Made bits of tender gray along the lower valley slopes, whilst high up toward the mountain tops the billowy wilderness of pines, cedars, and chestnut trees added their variated patchwork that gradually rose and shaded off into the blue distance. In some places where storms, All the needs of man, had removed the oak woods, a dense, frondous mass of young pines, had leaded up with a greenness full of a soft yellow glow. The sunshine and the winds of the south were flowing over this scene, and there were fragrant odors and balsamic pungency in every wave. The man, a tall, shapely fellow, was a young Englishman who had lately come to the iron and coal region of Alabama to take care of extensive manufacturing and mining interests belonging to his family. Just at present, With a true English faith in the value of outdoor sports, he was hunting wild turkeys, or for that matter, whatever other wild game might chance to let him get within gunshot of it. He had left his hotel at Birmingham with the first hint of dawn and had steadily tramped over the hills and mountain spurs, and through wild ravines and beautiful glades, without a sight of fur or feather, now he stood on this airy height, flushed with the healthful exercise, a little disappointed and annoyed, but the mountain air of the south has in it a tenderly exhilarating influence which affects the imagination and lulls one into pleasant, though often rather vague, dreams. No matter if Edward Morton was an intensely practical-minded man of affairs, the kind of Englishman who is willing to come to America and superintended ironworks and coal mines, he was, nevertheless, not wholly impervious to the poetry, the lulling magnetism of the climate and the scene. For a while, he leaned on his gun, a long, heavy, double barreled piece. Then he took from his pocket a cigarette and match, seated himself on an old grey stone and began smoking. In the midst of the valley below ran a rivulet, winding through the woods with a silvery shimmer, and out across the farms and past one little mill, on into a deep gorge of the stony hills. Morton had not found his surroundings in Birmingham quite satisfactory, notwithstanding the fact that he had fallen in love after the old time fervid fashion with a fair young northern girl living there. The little mining town cramped between the hills, full of rough folk, raw and new, could not be very attractive to a man who, no matter how practical and matter-of-fact in his disposition, had studied art and who still nursed the artist's dreams. As he sat there, with his blue-gray eyes slowly sweeping the valley, he was not as blithe-looking as a model sportsman should be, His dog, a small brown spaniel, sat down at his feet and eyed him lazily. No sound save the rustle of the wind in the trees, and a dull distant tapping of a woodpecker was disturbing the broad silence of the forest. The sky was intensely blue. Suddenly... A short puff of dampness came from the southwest, followed by a growl of thunder, a thing not usual in winter, even in that latitude. Morton arose and saw a heavy line of black cloud, overhanging some conical peaks far away on the southwestern horizon. Come Nat, he said to his dog, we must be going back, a nasty squall is coming, we shall get our jackets wet. Nat answered with divers canine antics and the two turned away from the valley, the man walking with long firm strides and the dog trotting perfunctorily by his side. Their way led among the flanking spurs and foothills of the range, now over great fragmentary boulders, now through yawning clefts and down winding defiles, sometimes on bare ridges of shale, among under the dark odorous brushes of the pines. The cloud came after them, Sending in advance its gusts and moist, fragrant air. A vast wing reached up the zenith and a few big drops of rain padded down. A morning shower in the mountains comes at racehorse speed. The swiftest birds are caught by it. A flock of noisy crows went flapping across the valley striving in vain to outstrip the slanting flood that fell with a brood washing raw from that rushing cloud. We are in for a soaking, Nat, grumbled Morton, as he plucked up the collar of his shooting jacket, a deuced bad outcome for our first day's shooting in America. Nat's tail was down, and so were his ears. He relished the signs of the weather, no more than did his stalwart master. A chilliness was creeping into the air, foretelling how disagreeable the rain was to be sure. The very trees shivered as the sunshine was shut off by the overlapping cloud, It was just as the storm was about to break that certain sharp cries peculiar to the wild turkey reached the quick ears of sportsman and dog. The man stopped short and cocked his gun as the spaniel darted away to a short distance and then began creeping through the low underbrush as they said it does when about to come to a point. In the next instant, four large birds were flushed, breaking from cover at about forty yards, their wings making the woods resound with their loud flapping. Almost at the same moment, the bang-pang of Morton's gun fired right and left, went echoing across the valley and battling amongst the hills. A cock and hen were stopped short and fell heavily. The dog sprang forward to lead his master to the game, and then came a blinding down gush of rain with a roar like that of a cyclone. Morton, with great difficulty and got the birds, and after tying them together by the feet, slung them across his shoulder. This additional load, and the hindering force of the rain, made his further progress quite laborious. Nat resumed his drooping, mechanical jog-trot at his master's side. The young man leaned over, and almost shut his eyes as he pressed on, catching quick breaths as the cold streams trickled down his back. His shooting jacket and trousers were meant to be impervious to water, but the chilling liquid was dashed by force of the wind against his neck and thence found its way down to his heels. He did not hesitate, under such stress of ill luck, to rush boldly against the door of a low, rambling mountain cabin and demand admission. His knock on the rough planks was heard by the inmates of the place, despite the heavy roar of the rain, and the response was immediate. Come in, come in spoke a rather pleasing voice in the peculiar accent and innotation of the mountaineers of the region, as the door was opened, letting the hunter and his dog in, along with a dash of slanting rain. Let me take them birds, stranger, and we'll get you by the fire. It's pretty audacious rainy all of a sudden, Purdy near drowned a fella. The speaker was a slender, almost light man, near fifty years old, flaxen-haired, thin-faced, with a sharp nose and a straggling beard, still lighter than his hair. He took the brace of the birds off Morton's shoulder and threw them aside on the clean white floor I'll just put your gun up for you here, he continued, taking the weapon and leaning it against the wall in a corner of the room. Then he quickly fetched a chair. Set down and make yourself at home. I'll punch up the fire. It's got sorty low. I'll get some lighted knots. Morton found himself in a place whose features had once interested him. Glancing around the room, he saw two low beds, a few plain split-bottomed chairs, an old queer bureau or chest of drawers with glass knobs, some rude shelves, with ironstone dishes on them, a long flintlock rifle hanging in barkhorn forks over the door. One of the forks also held a coonskin bullet pouch and curiously carved powder horn. The fireplace before which he sat was broad and deep, roughly lined with jagged stones, picturesquely black with fleecy accumulations of soot from pine smoke. It was crossed by a heavy charred wooden crane, and on its broad jams rested a curious collection of cob pipes, clay pipes, wooden pipes and soft stone pipes, along with sundry ragged twists of brown home-raised tobacco, There was a low, wide window on one side of the room and beside it Morton's eyes rested for a moment on a slim girl's form in a half-cowering position. She was so turned from him that he could see no more of her face than a rounded line of one cheek. There was a heavy brush of long... Bright yellowish flaxen hair, a very delicate ear, and a glimpse of a brown throat and neck. One hand, rather large but shapely, lay along her lap, on the scant folds of a homespun cotton dress, the skirt of which could not quite hide her coarsely shod feet there was something curiously striking in this crumpled little figure that held Morton's gaze for a time. Through an open door that gave into a smaller room, the intermittent hum of a spinning wheel made itself heard. Distinct from the clash and swash of the storm, a tall, angular woman walked back and forth drawing out and reeling up the coarse thread as she was twisting the man had soon fetched wooden pine knots for the fire and presently a liberal flame wavered up to the mouth of the great old chimney he turned to Morton and said lay off your coat stranger We're going to get your shirt dry. It's outdacious and honourable fur to heave on a wet shirt. Morton smiled pleasantly. Thank you, I will, he said, rising and stripping off the stiff jacket. You are very kind. I am covering your floor with water. Sure, That's nothing, replied the man, in a tone of gentle contempt. If you'd see hit sometimes when I come in you might talk. Them little puddles hain't nothing at all. The colonel and me just floods the whole house when he gets wet. Wonder if John hain't a coming pap. This sudden inquiry came in a sweet, half-shy voice from the girl at the window. She calls him John. I calls him Colonel, explained the man. Then turning to answer the question. Oh, there's no counting for him. He's as likely to stay out all day and night as anyway. It doesn't make a difference to him, whether it rains or not, does it, Millie? The girl had turned her face toward the man when she spoke, but now she averted it again, a little flush gathering on the brown cheek. He don't mind no weather, stranger. The Colonel don't, rain or sunshine. "'It's all the same to him, isn't it, Millie?' continued the host. "'I wish he'd come on back home,' exclaimed the girl. "'That's what I wish.' Morton had turned his back to the fire. He was astride on the chair, and the steam was rising vigorously from his wet garments." Out of the corners of his eyes, he kept glancing at the lithe, plump little figure by the window. He had the taste of an artist, and here was a model for brush or chisel to imitate. He was a genuine man, too, and here was a bit of rare feminine beauty, no matter how coarsely clad or how hopelessly uncultured. She had the grace of outline common to wild things, and there was that half-pathetic, half-glad beam in her face that appeals to a man's love of the innocent and his pity for the weak. Her head was small and well-poised above plump shoulders, Her bust was full, yet girlish, giving just a hint of a girl that he used to date before he came to America. Do you ever smoke a pipe, stranger? inquired the host, offering Morton a cob pipe with a twist of tobacco. Thank you. Yes, I will take some of your tobacco. I have a pipe, said the young man, drawing from his vest pocket a small meerkorn, old and dark as mahogany. He had heard of the excellence of this mountain home-grown tobacco. It's pretty good, if I do say so myself, most of them around here are glad to get Tom as back and smoke, aren't they, Milly? Mr. White thus introduced himself and his tobacco at the same time. At this point, Mrs. White quit her wheel and came into the room. She spoke to Morton pleasantly, as if she had known him, smiling cordially if you men folks don't care I'll just join you for a whiff or two she said going to the chimney jam and selecting a pipe they formed a strange group around that cabin fire Morton felt the democratic force of the situation and enjoyed it to the full Aren't you going to have a hand in this here General Smoke Milly," said Mr. White, chuckling jokingly and looking under comically drawn eyebrows at the girl. Now, Pap, you know I don't smoke at all, she answered quickly, getting up and leaving the room. Her movement was as light and nimble As that of a hare. Of course she don't smoke, you know, said White to Morton. Confidentially lowering his voice. I was just yanking her fur greens. She knows when I'm a green in her. And she gets tiffy at me in a minute. She's as sharp as a darn needle Millie is. Morton, whose eyes furtively followed the girl as she left the room, saw that the apartment into which she passed was nearly carpeted and furnished with a well-worn, easy chairs and table and a desk. Between the opening and closing of the door, he caught sight also of long sleeves of books and some pictures, the room appeared quite large, and arranged as if for a gentleman's study, the contrast between its almost elegant appointments, and the arid blankness of the one in which Morton sat, was so pronounced, that despite his patrician self-control, a wave of surprise passed over his face. The quick eyes of the mountaineer saw this. That there ere the colonel's part of the house, he hastily said, a trace of apology and disclaimer in his voice. It just suits him. He's got an audacious sight of Larnan and plenty of money. He can buy whatever he wants. Yes, said Mrs. White rather sharply. He's right now staring under some tree or rock, waiting for rain to quit and reading a book. Seems powerful queer to me. Morton was almost tempted to ask questions. So quick an interest had been generated by this gossip about the colonel. Certainly this was a strange home for a man of wealth and education. Possibly the colonel was some sport-loving gentleman from New Orleans, Mobile or Montgomery, who had taken these apartments in the cabin as a sort of shooting box. He thought for he had heard much of the peculiarities and extravagances of rich southerners. But his mental discussion of this subject was cut short by a sudden movement on the part of white who sprang to his feet and elevated his hands... Well, it's just too audacious, Sarah, he cried, as if utterly to grind. Just to think, the stranger came in wet and soaked and had no liquor. Bout like such as us and frugal as we are, responded Mrs. White. You'll find them under the bed behind the sack of taters, White dived under the bed in question and drew forth a large earthen bottle. Mrs. White fetched a large heavy tumbler and handed it to Morton. Morton, with no light inward protest, submitted his lips to the preferred glass. His English taste for excellent drinks... Was never more deliciously surprised. What began as a formal, carefully guarded sip crept into a series of slow quaffs, ending in a final hearty gulp. White grinned delightedly. It's good, isn't it, stranger? Don't we have the best way of getting to the very marrow of a feller's neck of any liquor he ever tasted? If it don't get there, none don't. The colonel says it's the best liquor that he has ever tasted and he has travelled, he has. He's been in foreign parts, Rome and France, and them air places. Morton was quick to acknowledge that the brandy was surprisingly fine. It had the bouquet of old wine, the body of cognac, and the mellow fire of scotch whiskey, along with a faint trace of peach kernels. He thought of a certain London club in which he would like to introduce this sand and nectar. White partook sparingly of the precious beverage, and then carefully replaced the bottle in its hiding place under the bed. Meantime, the heavy throbs of wind and rain shook the cabin to its foundation, When the mountaineer returned to his chair by the fire Morton inquired of him Where the brandy was made Oh, I don't know Wherever it was made, no how We calls it the Mountain Dew Said White Glancing furtively at his wife The peach brandy made it the sly little stills scattered among the mountains from North Carolina to Alabama, is sometimes locally called Mountain Dew. It is not the drink of drunkards. In fact, the mountaineers, with now and then an exception, are remarkably temperate in the matter of tippling. but the jug of dew is the special implement of their hospitality. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the story of this mountaineer, and I hope you are feeling a little drowsy. If you're not quite feeling tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing you a new episode very soon. Good night.